0: i For joining us again, uh, before we get started, please make sure you follow us everywhere. That means all the socials: Instagram, Twitter at No Small Jobs Pod. We have a Facebook page, No Small Jobs Pod, where you get regular updates about when episodes are available, and you can interact with other people and uh, see what everyone else is talking about. Please make sure you subscribe wherever you get good podcasts. Rate us five stars, please. We always love a good five star review um and share it with your friends if they are interested in being guests let me know shoot me a message wherever you can um or just spread the word and uh spread the love hey so today my guest is bill bill is a university lecturer in law hi bill hi thanks for coming on to the show thank you all right let's uh let's go right back to the beginning uh what inspired you to enter the field of law
1: it's really strange actually. When I was in high school, I was interested in different things. I was interested in being a PE teacher or a, or a fitness trainer. And it, I actually had a break in high school where I, I finished year 11, dropped out of school for a while, worked in a supermarket for a while, went back and did VCE, um, got really good marks, and ended up studying law. And I also had a second break when I was studying law. Um, before my final year, I also had another break and took time off study for about 18 months and then came back and did the final final year over another year and a half. So I studied part-time during that time. Let's go right back there. So what what initially inspired
0: you to be a PE teacher or fitness instructor?
1: I don't know. I've always been really interested in uh, sort of sports and fitness. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess as I got older, particularly when I did VCE, I did legal studies and that I found really interesting um and the idea of working within the court system um i had a few uh, to do with education i i took a few breaks and I, I think those breaks were really valuable to sort of think about what i was doing and where i was going and why i was wanting to study and even later in life i've come back to to do more study but i think I think that taking the breaks from study has helped me in my teaching work and it's helped me particularly help students who are dealing with difficulties in their studies and it's helped them to sort of me to give advice to them and guidance because I can speak to those issues from a bit of my own experience
0: which is which is really valuable being able to relate to your students in that direct manner for for you I mean obviously feel free to say as much or as little as you like were those breaks things that you electively chose Yes and no. Um, It's sort of hard to
1: explain them in hindsight, but I think they were valuable. And I mean, university study in particular can be difficult, and there are some challenges which different students face. Um, You know, can especially law can be quite demanding in terms of the time requirement it takes. Um, particularly if you're trying to balance it with, with um, work commitments and things like that. Mm. Um, I mean, everyone goes through crisis points in terms of their confidence and in terms of their ability to complete their studies, and also um, the thinking about themselves as actually working as a lawyer within the legal profession.
0: I mean, I know that for um, for my kids, let's look back step. My experience was very linear in that when I did my high school, I always knew that I was going to be a doctor. So I did all my studies, went straight into uni, and I very briefly entertained the possibility of having a gap year of some sort. But within my culture, that with my parents particularly, that was never ever going to happen. If I had said that, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be alive right now. Um, so, but I would want my kids to take a gap year because I think that. Certainly, particularly as a teenager, there is this high expectation of knowing what you want to do without having really discovered the world. Mm. So essentially, you're making a lot of the decisions uh, for the rest of your life off um, a very limited world view of the things that you see around you. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes by virtue of that, you can discover things that you do truly love. But um, if, you, if, if you're making these decisions, not knowing what else is out there, and obviously, again, you you did a quite... I mean, one would argue quite an academic about-face, really, sort of focus, starting with the PE stuff, which is obviously very physical, and still obviously very positive for society, but then moving into something incredibly intensive. I mean, what, as you said, you you, you found this passion for law and the legal system, what was it about it that appealed to you? I think what really um, motivated me in terms
1: of studying and, and completing my degree and even working in the profession was actually starting to volunteer, and one of the first places I volunteered was at the Fitzroy Legal Service and that was uh it's a great opportunity where law students can actually go in um they can take instructions from a client and they can uh, assess the client situation and under the supervision of a practicing lawyer they can actually give advice to clients and that was an amazing opportunity to see the sort of struggles that people are dealing with in their everyday life like parking fines traffic tickets um uh, and all sorts of consumer d- uh, issues and tenancy issues and those sort of things. And people who couldn't ordinarily um, receive advice because they couldn't afford to pay a lawyer, but they, um, they'd found out about the legal service, they could drop in there and they could get advice. So that was really valuable, I think, from the, from the client's point of view to actually be able to get free li- legal advice and assistance, but also from the point of view of the person who's giving advice. That means that you can sort of put your skills to use under the supervision of someone who's an experienced lawyer and you can sort of gain confidence as well in your ability to to work with clients to do research and to give advice to people and so what exactly was your role as a volunteer so it it was as as an advisor I couldn't give advice unsupervised like I would I would first get information from the clients then I would go back and speak with the practicing lawyer and check off what what research I'd done and what advice I was going to give to the client. And, and I wouldn't give that advice until it had been ticked off by the, by the practicing lawyer. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, you know, quality assurance, but also giving me valuable experience in terms of doing that research, gather the, gathering the information and then actually giving advice to the client. And that really opened my eyes up. And I ended up uh, working in another community legal center later on at
0: the tenants union. Okay. Uh, and, uh, do you think, whether any other in, things that happened to you during your legal studies that influenced your career choice? I think it's really strange. as a As a law student, you're
1: sort of bam, um, bamboozled with the marketing that comes from the big uh, top tier law firms, mm. and so as a law law student, you could really gain the impression that that's the best thing you can do, or sort of the only thing you can do with your law degree. And if I had the sense, particularly towards the end of my degree, that I wasn't really interested in. Um, working for a big law firm I wasn't really interested in the money uh, or or particularly wasn't interested in working the long hours which that requires either Mm. Um, but it's sort of hard to know about the other options which are out there like working for government or working for a community legal centre you really don't find out about those unless you sort of do a bit of exploring or you happen to meet the right person who may sort of be able to key you
0: into those sort of what they call the alternative legal careers and is that why you took that break just before you finished up your degree to, to discover the world and see what else was out there?
1: Or? Uh, well, I took a break because I, I was sick of study at that point. No, <laughs> it, was, it was actually doing the volunteer experience was actually what motivated me to get back in and to finish and to complete my degree and to sort of also appreciate that there might be a, a legal role out there which was suited for me.
0: Hmm. i mean we're we're jumping ahead a little bit but do you think that uh comparing now to back when you were studying there are more opportunities for legal for legal students to see what other what other things they can do with their degree
1: well it's sort of interesting because there's more law students out there than ever before there's uh, you know there's a number of law students are pumping out um law graduates each year but i think there are a lot of amazing opportunities out there there are so many community legal centers in melbourne and victoria generally and they are all crying out for volunteers to assist whether it's giving advice or assisting them with policy work or doing research or something like that there are a lot of opportunities out there Um, so law students sort of have to consider their options pretty broadly particularly if they don't see themselves working in sort of a a mainstream legal role there are lots of other options um but it tends to the, the students themselves need to do a bit of research and need to sort of look around about what what sort of options could be available to them
0: mm. okay so as,
1: so what was your first job out of law school my first job was actually working at the Revenue Office, so it was a government job, and, and that was really good in terms of the hours were 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 manageable. They're sort of standard nine to five hours, and they provided really good training and induction. I mean, I hear about lots of law graduates who receive a pretty horrendous um, traineeship where they're just photocopying for you know, most of their time. They might have to work long hours, but the the work which they do is pretty pretty trivial it doesn't really give them good experience I mean I was really lucky in terms of getting good training I was working with a team of um, people who I'd also studied with and they gave us thorough training and really good supervision so I was in that role for around about eight months um, and then I wanted to work for a judge to be a judge's associate so I was assisting the judge that was at the Victorian Civil Administrative Tribunal Um, assisting her with the hearings that she was doing and with the decisions that she was making.
0: Mm -hmm. We're actually interesting. We've had someone who went on a similar path as a judge associate in a Supreme Court setting and apparently it was quite, as she is, she found it quite um, illuminating seeing it from the other side.
1: Yeah, yeah. The judge that I was working with was doing some really interesting matters. She was mainly in the anti-discrimination area and she did a little bit of guardianship work as well, but it really opened my eyes to the way that the law actually works in practice. And it's, particularly with discrimination cases, it's very difficult for people to succeed with discrimination cases. Even if they have been treated really harshly, for example, by their employer, um, the way that discrimination law works is very complex and it, uh, it's very difficult for a person who um, has experienced some sort of um, bad treatment, for example, in their workplace to actually succeed with a discrimination case. And if they lose, then they often have to pay the cost of the other party as well. Jeez,
0: that's fascinating. And also really demoralizing. I mean, that's, in your, you know, in your belief, why is that the case? Well,
1: I guess all areas of law tend to be quite complex in their detail. And you, if you're the person who's making a complaint and trying to bring a case through the courts then the odds are often stacked against you the onus is on you to prove the case and also to to argue that it's that it's legally established um and i guess discrimination law in particular it's it's evolved as an area of employment law and as often a quite a uh, an imbalance between the resources of the employer on the one side and the resources of the employee who's making the complaint on the other side so often the employer is represented by um, big law know, firms by big law firms by experienced barristers, and the employee is
0: often representing themselves, and they don't really have much of an idea about what they're doing. Oh, that's unfortunate. Does, uh, did that? I mean, I, I think we're going to come to this eventually. Is that how you ended up in human rights law as
1: well? It was one of the, certainly one of the really significant experiences with, which led me in that direction. Mm.
0: So tell us more about that. About human uh, rights law.
1: Uh, well, I guess through my background working in community legal centres, I became very. Um, passionate about the human rights law work um, and there's many you know many individuals and many organizations out there who are doing great great work. Um, I went on to do further study at, at to Melbourne University as well to actually get a master's in the area um, but I worked at the Tenants Union and that was really valuable experience in terms of the Tenants Union represents um, tenants in their disputes with landlords, gives advice and often represents them at hearings. So the tenants were often in a really difficult situation where they were being or facing eviction and we would represent them um, in their matters. We, we of course, didn't always succeed, but we would represent them to the best of our ability. Mm. Um, And it is often a a complex area where tenants, um, if they had to represent themselves, they'd have virtually no chance of succeeding. Mm. With a lawyer, you probably have a slightly better chance of success.
0: Okay, so um, what did your so that was the tenants union was that? I, I, I think I'm, I muddled I've muddled this up really chronologically. So the, so the tenants union work was uh, what? Ha, when was that in your career? Like what, what uh, that, that
1: was immediately before I started teaching. So that was two thousand and ten to two thousand and thirteen. Okay, and so
0: when did the human rights work stuff come into your career?
1: Oh well, I think it sort of evolved. Like even working as a judges associate, I mentioned that. The, the judge that I was working with happened to be working in the area of guardianship and, and um, anti-discrimination law, which I consider to be human rights law work. Uh, yeah, fair enough. I, I, I often think that human rights isn't really a discrete area of law. It's sort of like a focus or a, um, an emphasis that you place on whatever area you're working in. There's lots of lawyers who work in commercial firms, for example, who do human rights work. They might do it in a volunteer capacity or they might do it um, if they're given time to do it by the firm that they work with. Uh, but it does encompass a lot of different areas and I include tenancy law within that as well because it's about the tenants' rights and helping to protect their rights in relation to their home and and in relation to um, what their landlord can and can't do.
0: I mean, I guess look, in, uh, looking at it through that lens though, you could consider a great deal. Any any aspect of the law that is not about financial compensation or obviously financial compensation is part of it, any anything that's about your right to exist and have... You know, what to, to, to live a comfortable life that would be human rights law would that be an accurate? Interpretation? Yeah, I think
1: that's absolutely right. Like Victoria has a charter of, of human rights, and the list of human rights is quite broad, it includes housing, um, you know, the right to be free from discrimination, privacy, reputation, those sort of things. The list is quite broad, and it can include a whole lot of areas, including consumer law, and um, yeah, many
0: different areas. Okay, D- was. Has there been any experience that you've had within this field that's affected you positively or negatively?
1: Well, I feel like, uh, particularly in my work at the Tenants Union, there were some some successful cases which we were quite proud of. It was, it was always quite rewarding, I think, to represent tenants when they're facing um, harsh treatment by the government. and then And I'm particularly talking about tenants were in public housing and they were often being evicted for what seemed like quite harsh reasons. They were being um, alleged, for example, that that they'd damaged the property or they'd caused um, danger to their neighbours. And often the true story when it was able to be proved in a hearing was was actually very different from what the allegation that had been made against the tenant. And the tenant's in a really vulnerable position because they have had this allegation made against them. and unless they can disprove that, then they're facing eviction from their home, which would potentially make them homeless. Mm. So there were some some victories which we had, which I'm particularly proud of. Um, and there were some cases which I was involved in, which made the front page of the Herald Sun. Oh. Um, apparently, I was representing the wrong sorts of people.
0: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh so in a negative way. No, no, no. Yeah, I can put this on my wall i be really <laughs> proud of this. <laughs> Um, no,
1: you know, the, the tabloid newspapers get excited about some sorts of issues. And yes. when it looks like a, a person who's receiving public housing is doing the wrong thing, they're, of course, you know, the moral high ground is often
0: taken with those sort of cases. Mm. Um, I find the area of guardianship really fascinating because I actually work in the field of intellectual disability with, with mm. my part of my medical work. So quite often the, the question of guardianship, the idea of consent and capacity to consent comes up a lot. Um, what... I guess, obviously, having been a judge's associate, what factors end up getting considered when looking at whether or not someone needs a guardianship?
1: I I never actually became a, a sort of an expert in the area of guardianship, and it's not an area that I actually know a lot about. Okay. Um, but I also volunteer in the area of uh, disability as well. There's a role that I do as a community volunteer where I, um, with a, in pairs, we go out and visit people who live in group homes. Who have a disability and they're living in um, a group home where they're being supported to live um, independently, and it's a complex area, um, and it's there's a fine balance to be struck between providing proper support for people, but also allowing them to make their own choices and to allow them to encourage them to live independently. You know, it's I think we've made great improvements from the types of situation where people were institutionalised; they were not allowed to make a lot of choices about their own life Mm. and i think we've improved in in great leaps and bounds in that area but there are still difficult decisions to be made and it's a fine balance between allowing a person to make choices in their own interests and um, sort of protecting them from harm and protecting them also from exploitation and those sorts of things
0: so in your role as a community volunteer are you an advocate or are you an assessor of some sort
1: well, what we go to, what we do is simply we go into the homes and we speak with the residents when that's possible, we sort of view around, take a look at what's what's happening. So in a sense, we are an advocate, we we speak on behalf of the of residents. Sometimes that advocacy will happen in the immediate environment where we where we can actually speak with staff or in the home um if we think that the residents not being treated respectfully or not their rights aren't being respected. Um, and often what we do is at the end of a visit, we, we submit a written report and that will often, if there's serious issues or sort of ongoing issues, then we will put them in the written report and that will be assessed by a manager who manages the homes in that particular area. So it is an advocacy role and it's sort of a reporting role as well. Is this, do you respond to specific complaints or is this a routine thing that happens? Both. So we do, there is a possibility that someone can request that we actually go out and do a visit, but most of the visits we do are actually spontaneous. So we try and visit most homes twice a year at least, Um, but they're unannounced. So neither the residents nor the staff know that we're visiting. Um, And I think that's part of the how the visits actually work, that they're not meant to be prepared for. They're meant to be spontaneous and to see the home as, as it actually is. And it's really pleasing when you see those homes that are really caring and supportive environments. And you can sort of notice the difference immediately when you walk in the door between a home where, um, where residents are being supported and they're, and they're being listened to and they're being allowed to make choices about their life and the homes where, where that's not happening. How much impact can you have on
0: the quality of life of a resident?
1: Sometimes it's hard to hard to know because um, uh, it's a sort of an ongoing role. Like um, often I'll visit a home for the first time and meet the residents for the first time, and it's a lot of information to take in at the one time. Um, I think we do have impact over time. Sometimes it's not immediate, but sometimes it's a long term um, thing. And it, sometimes it's sort of about reminding the staff about that they're that they're looking after individuals and to to treat the um, The people as individuals because sometimes the staff themselves have been working in these sort of facilities for a long time and they become institutionalized to a certain extent as well Mm. they sort of do their tasks in a way which is convenient and quick for them Uh, for example preparing meals it's quicker if the staff do it rather than allowing the residents to do it but of course it gives the residents more control over their own life for example if they are able to participate in preparing meals for themselves for example
0: yeah absolutely and it is I mean, we're talking about human rights here. It is easy to um, make broad brushstrokes of people with intellectual disabilities that we assume that if they're incapable in certain skills, they must be incapable in everything, when actually their their skill capacity is quite variable um, uh, amongst different things, whether it be fine motor, gross motor, complex tasks. And it is... Yeah, and, and particularly the people who did live in the institutions like Kew Cottages back up until, you know, as late as the early 2000s, you know, um, they were never given that opportunity. But we assume that because they can't do it, they w- aren't capable of doing it as opposed to never, no one ever actually spending the time to teach them how to, yeah, prepare a meal, even just make a cup of tea can be quite, uh, uh, quite a, a sign of autonomy and give them a sense of independence that they wouldn't have had before. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah um so what what drives you like obviously a lot of your work has been about human rights what is it about that field that you know fills you with this sort of passion um well my view is that that's what the law
1: is about i mean it's sort of it's hard to sort of explain that to a greater depth but i mean when i was growing up my mum um had books about um Mother Teresa of Calcutta mm. um, and I guess I was influenced by that a lot this sort of idea about social justice and, and I know the law can often produce injustice and, and I saw that a lot through my community legal center experience but I think the law can be a, a force for positive good as well and I, I'm very motivated by people like um, Mahatma Gandhi and even people like Nelson Mandela to me they're I mean they're both trained as lawyers but they're their work was much more influential than simply um, going to a law firm and doing the regular <laughs> nine to five <laughs> thing. They're, like the, uh, you know, particularly with um, with Gandhi and, and with Nelson Mandela as well, like they're able to use their legal skills to sort of have a bigger, a broader impact uh, on the country in which they lived and the society in which they lived. And they and they were both involved in, you know, removing discrimination, removing sort of segregation um and you know those sort of figures for me are very influential they're sort of what what motivate me that's for me that's an, an idea of what what being a lawyer is all about and is that also what motivated you to move into
0: education to, to spread the word
1: yeah well in terms of my transition from practicing as a lawyer to to being an educator when i was at the tenants union i was actually training um lawyers when they were beginning their work there so i'd, I'd train them in um, giving advice to clients and also representing clients at VCAT hearings. And I was doing that almost uh, full-time as part of my work. We, we um, it's, Unfortunately, it's a product of community legal centres that there's a high turnover. People don't tend to stay for that long, so we're having a lot of new people come through. I enjoyed the training aspect of it, and I really enjoyed that sort of aspect of working with people to improve their skills and improve their knowledge. Um, and it, at that point, I thought well I enjoy training a lot and maybe I could actually make that into my career that could be my next step as a as a career path and from there it was actually quite easy to get um, part-time working working at universities and I worked at Victoria University and I was also teaching at La Trobe University at the same time and I enjoyed you know working
0: at both those universities Mm. and uh, uh, so at the moment obviously you're a university lecturer you're working with OPA as well that's the Office of the Public Advocate Um, are there any other roles that you are currently working at the moment well i don't work for the office of the public Health, so that's a volunteer sorry, capacity yes. and, I,
1: and i sort of sometimes get myself over involved in terms of the volunteering stuff that <laughs> i do trying to cut down on my commitments so i can manage what i what i do have on my plate um i'm also on the editorial board of a um a law journal called the alternative law journal which as the name suggests it's sort of a bit outside the mainstream it deals with um uh, sort of broader topics than perhaps most law journals deal with. It, it deals with issues about migration, with sexual harassment, with discrimination, with uh, with legal education, with guardianship and it the journal itself has a very social justice type of focus but it's mm-hmm. also read by not just legal academics but but read by policy advisors and people studying political science and those sort of things. So it's a journal which I feel like I can really relate to. And one of the first articles that I had published was actually in that journal many, many years ago. Ah, what was it about? Um, It was actually about when I was working at VCAT, about I was was doing research for my judge and I, I was amazed at how easy it was for newspapers to gain access to very sensitive information that was on the file which the tribunal had. So when you commence a case at VCAT, you submit documents to the tribunal which are going to be part of the hearing. But it was actually possible for newspapers to get access to those documents, very sensitive information. For example, if a person is making a complaint about sexual harassment, they would have to provide the details as part of their written documentation. The newspapers were getting access to that and they're publishing it as part of newspaper articles. And I found out... It was amazing... um, to, to realise how easy it is for newspapers to get access to that because they are basically public documents. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the newspaper was publishing this as a, as a salacious story because it was good to get, you know, to publish details about alleged sexual harassment or alleged discrimination. And the judges at VCAT were trying to prevent access because it had a negative um, effect on the people who are making complaints. It would cool. basically deter people from making complaints mm. and it would publicise details before conciliation had happened. So it, actually, it would actually make it less likely that conciliation would be successful because the details had already been put in the public domain. Right. Okay. So I... Does that mean at this point, you are you practicing law still? In in the more traditional sense? No, no, I don't have a practicing certificate anymore and I don't I gave up my practicing certificate when I started teaching in two thousand and thirteen. Do you miss it? I do in a small way, but I'm I'm really happy with the work that I'm doing at the moment. So it's sort of like I can't do everything. Of course, uh, <laughs> I could go back to practice law. Um it's just that um when you have a practicing certificate you also have to do ongoing professional development. So that would mean that if I if I had a practicing certificate at the moment, I'd have to do that CPD every, every year and I probably don't have time to do that.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, so it sounds like you have committed to yourself quite a number of things. Yep. Um, there are legal academics who, who still practice though and
1: it's sort of interesting, some of the legal academics that I really admire still do high court cases and practice as barristers in particular. Mm. What made you decide to leave it all behind? practicing part of it well i knew that i couldn't do both and when i decided to start teaching i decided just to give the the practicing certificate a a complete break Mm. um and like i said i didn't have the time to do the professional development that being a practicing lawyer involves with it sure and i decided to to make the complete leap do you think you'd ever go back to it uh at this stage no no, I'm sort of focused with my own work, and I'm also completing a PhD at the moment. Um, got a young family, so my my plate's pretty much full at the moment.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Where do you see your career moving to from this point? Uh, yeah, like would you would you be happy just to do exactly what you're doing now for the rest of your life?
1: Well, the legal academy sort of has its own slippery pole. <laughs> You know, and I'm sort of a junior a member of the Legal Academy at the moment, so I'm sort of a lecturer and it moves up to being a professor. And ideal, I I'd sort of like to move up those, um, you know, through that sort of ranking. And it does, as you become a, a senior lecturer and an associate professor and a professor, it tends to have greater opportunities that are available through that as well. Um, so that's where I see my career going in
0: the next, um, you know, for the future that I see. Mm. What op- You said other opportunities. What opportunities would open up as you... You know, climb the ladder. Oh well, sort of
1: being invited to speak at conferences where you can actually have an influ- influence and sort of impact the thinking in a particular area, um, and that's the other great part of being a legal academic that um, that you can actually influence um, the the shape of the law and even the sort of the technical detail about the law, and that's through the journal articles that that we write and also through having input in various lawmaking bodies. For example, I'm involved in a process at the moment where the Law Reform Commission of Victoria is reviewing the law about contempt of court. So that's the the law that relates to um, what can be said and published about court hearings in particular. And there's a possibility that the Law Reform Commission will make recommendations and they would be adopted by Parliament. It's a real privilege actually being involved in that process because it could um, result in the law in Victoria being updated because contempt of court is pretty much out of date in terms of... um, you know in terms of what the media can publicize about about court hearings and you're probably aware about the George Powell proceeding and about the 36 media organizations that have been um, who are being punished for contempt of court mm-hmm. and there's an argument that that they shouldn't be restricted in what they what they say about about proceedings which are going on and there's a and there's an argument that
0: the public have a right to know about those sort of things as well okay um, and obviously you know as you said the your role in in your your role your current role allows you to have the kind of influence that you've sought as part of your overall career with Mahatma Gandhi and Nelson Mandela being inspirations. Are there any other ways that you could influence policy? I mean, were there were there other alternatives you would considered? Uh no, well legal academics, I mean, through their
1: through their sort of ordinary work they kinda of have an ability to um to influence the, how the law is made and how the law is interpreted. Like if you are an influential legal academic, sometimes your work is picked up by judges and it's referred to by judges and it can actually influence how the law is interpreted because there's many areas um, that, that it's not so much that the law is badly written but it's been interpreted in strange ways by mm. judges mm. and there are ways in which courts can actually reinterpret areas of law in a way which sort of produces better outcomes so it's through influencing judges through influencing lawmakers that I think legal academics can can have a really positive influence and that's what I hope to do in my work. Do you have a passion project or a passion topic that you'd really like to have an impact on? Well my PhD that I'm doing at the moment is in the area of racial vilification and it's a so this is section 18c of the Racial Discrimination Act and I've been studying that area for about four years and I've got about two years to go with my PhD and I've just discovered, you know, my eyes have been open in terms of the complexity of the area and it also deals with these issues about free speech as well and I think free speech is an important topic but it's, but it's often misunderstood. It's sort of regarded as sort of a license for people to say anything and everything and for there to be no consequences of that. Um, so I've been doing a lot of complex research in that area and also publishing um and so that is my real passion at the moment i think it's a really important topic particularly in a multicultural country like australia it's really important that there are certain restrictions um on what people can say and it's not like this is a form of censorship it simply means that there are civil consequences in terms of compensation and those sort of things when a person infringes those laws um
0: I, I mean, that already I feel like my brain's overloading with it with the number, the, number the, the sheer volume of moral questions that come up with the idea of free speech. Because I mean, I obviously it, this, me being a complete layperson when it comes to this, I I can see your perspective in the idea that yeah, free speech isn't about the right to abuse people. It's mm. it's about it's the right to have your opinion, but without necessarily using it to diminish the value of other people. How do you? How do you regulate that? How do you explore that? You know, I'm not sure I can really grasp it. Well, I mean, you could
1: go back um, to John Stuart Mill. John Stuart Mill said that, um, and he was one of the famous advocates of free speech, if we go back, you know, in terms of um, history. But even he said that um, the limit of free speech is where it causes harm, where it causes harm to a particular person. And that's why we have laws... Against defamation, for example, and I think racial filification sits in that same sort of category. It causes harm to individuals. It causes social harm as well, and that's where a society, as a society, we've drawn the line. So free speech, of course, is valuable and important, and it has benefits in terms of um, individual individuals' development and growth. But it also can cause um, pretty concrete harms and, and long-term harms for individuals as well. Mm. And what is interesting is I feel like in the United States the um, the discussion about free speech is in many ways more evolved than it is in Australia. It feels like in Australia we're still in the sort of um, very early stages. Should we prohibit certain types of speech? In the US, at least philosophically, it, it's it's much more nuanced and in Canada and other countries as well it's much more nuanced. In uh, Canada has had hate speech laws for, for decades and they've been... Um, Approved by courts who say that they are consistent with, with free speech. And the interesting thing about hate speech is that it's been proven that it, that it, one of its effects is to silence the majorities who are sorry the the minority groups who are the target of that speech. So if it has a silencing effect, then that's not um, consistent with free speech. It's it's supporting the the speech rights of of one group but denying it to other groups. So, if we say we agree with free speech for all people, then that actually supports having laws, not it doesn't, um, it's not an argument against
0: them. So, the hope would be that by we, you, I guess, it, it, how do I organize my thoughts? You're, with your PhD, you're hoping to change the law in such a way to be able to encourage people of minor, who are in minority groups to be allowed to have their free speech. Is that That's right, yeah.
1: yeah. And the interesting thing is that there's so much misinformation about it and, and, and misunderstandings about the current laws which we have. Um, there's this idea that the current laws that Section 8 and C is a criminal offence and you can be jailed for breaching Section 8 and C, which is completely false. Mm. It's, it only has civil consequences. And in fact, 95% of cases are resolved at conciliation, so they, they never proceed to a court hearing. They're resolved at a, at a confidential conciliation. Very few cases actually go to court. And most of them are resolved through an apology. So there's no one, there's no possibility of anyone going to jail. Mm. They're resolved through, um, usually through conciliation, um, and there are a lot of misunderstandings. And I feel like sometimes even judges misunderstand the laws, and they 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 assume that they restrict speech to a greater extent than they in fact do. How do we overcome that? How do we overcome misunderstanding? <clears throat> I think through um, through through debate and through discussion itself, I mean, through an informed debate. But but the misunderstandings, I think, about Section 18C arise because there were prominent politicians, including um, Tony Abbott, who was um, very much in favour of repealing the laws. And there were suggestions made in the course of this debate. They weren't... Um yeah, you know, he, he I don't think he said overtly that they are criminal laws and you could be jailed, but there was this suggestion which was coming through in the debate again and again that they were criminal laws and that people could be jailed for, for breaching Section 8 and C. And that, in a sense, proves this notion that the, the marketplace of ideas doesn't always actually come up with accurate and, and, and information. Mm. Um, so a lot of free speech discussion is based on this idea that if you allow all types of speech, then the truth will eventually prevail but, I mean, that's an example about where truth has not prevailed because prominent speakers have misinterpreted the laws and presented them in a in an inaccurate
0: way. In Within your role as a lecturer, do you ever talk about the idea of being able to debunk these sorts of myths as well as obviously learning the law itself?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. One of the subjects that I teach in my academic work is uh, a subject on media law, and it's the interesting thing about Victoria University students is they come from many diverse backgrounds. We well, have lots of um, students from African backgrounds, lots of students from migrant backgrounds. And I remember a student actually asking me this question during one of the media law classes. She asked, "Could, is it possible for a member of parliament to be sued for racial vilification, which they say in their role as an MP? And it really opened my eyes to sort of the idea that that even prominent people could be held accountable for the things that they say, because there's a definitely um, racial vilification filters down from prominent speakers like 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 members of parliament and often um, uh, media spokespeople. Um, but it is possible to to clarify those. those I, Ideas and to to sort of make sure that accurate information comes to the fore, and that can be done like any citizen could do it through writing a letter to the editor or something like that, or through sort of engaging in debate with their with
0: their friends and neighbours. But we know from uh, basic social psychology is that getting a message to cut through can be quite tricky because um, the barriers that that often up that prevent people from taking on new information or being willing to correct. Correct misunderstandings will vary from person to person, varying depending on your culture, on your upbringing, on how it's being reinforced, depending on what your lifestyle is. So, I guess as much as uh, uh, I guess there there are there would be multiple avenues by which you'd want to try and address these misconceptions. So, as you said, on from a legal perspective, for in your in your opinion, be looking at policy. Would that be about right?
1: That's right. But it's also true that the media. Um, is responsible, it is accountable for what it produces. And and everyone can make a complaint about a media publication if it's if it's inaccurate or if it um, vilifies a particular group. And that's one thing which I, you know, inf- make sure that my students know when I'm teaching media law is there are processes for making complaints and there are processes where those complaints can be adjudicated. And I think the media accountability is a really important issue. Um And it's not about sort of targeting any particular person within the media, but it's about making sure that the media are responsible for what they're producing and that they are actually producing accurate information and not just reinforcing stereotypes and
0: um, inaccurate myths. Mm. Um, Veering slightly away from that, what is it you love about teaching? Um, I don't
1: know. Teaching, I guess offers this opportunity to sort of empower students and to help them to find their place in the legal profession and to sort of work out where it is that they want to end up with their legal work. And I often encourage students to think about um, what sort of area do they see themselves working in when they finish their law degree. I'm quite fortunate. I used to work with students at the start of their degree who are in first year, but now I'm primarily teaching... Students are at the end of their degree, they're in fourth year and they're you know at the cusp of actually finishing their degree and, and moving out into the legal profession. And I guess they will have picked up ideas along the way about what areas they're interested in working in. And I enjoy having conversations with students about um, what areas they see themselves working in because many of them do volunteer experience, many of them do internships and clerkships in the course of doing their degree. And it's given them a taste of what they do like doing and what they, what they don't like doing. I mean, the, the benefit of doing those internships is sometimes you find out what you do like and if it's a bad experience, then you'd know at that point that you just don't want to work in that area and that's a great, valuable experience as well.
0: Mm. And one would argue that about, about all life experience really is that we can't, um, we, we need to be, we need to change our expectations about what experiences are and the negative experiences, while they're not fun to experience at the time, they still inform what you want to do they give you clear ideas about what your priorities are in terms of what you want for your life what you want for your job what you want socially relationships and all those sorts of things so mm. um I, yeah I, I certainly agree that that these internships and, and volunteer work and all the, or any experience really can can really um uh, open your mind yeah. that's
1: true and when i was teaching media law i often get um people like john fain and um damian carrick actually came in once to speak with the students and that was really interesting so they are obviously john fain used to be a lawyer himself and is now working well he's recently retired as a radio presenter and Damien carrick does a law program on the abc and that that sort of to me it reinforces this idea that the law can lead to many different opportunities and i think that uh, like Damien Carrick working as a as a, a lawyer but also working as a radio presenter is such a valuable role because he informs people about le- current legal events but also he helps to um, demystify and to make complex issues explain them in simple terms mm. and I think that's a really valuable role for a lawyer and for for a law student as well because the thing is as you're doing a law degree you, your language changes and your ideas change and it's and I always reinforce with my students the um, it's a really valuable skill to be able to break your um, language down and to be able to
0: explain complex terms in simple language. Yeah, in uh, in in uh, Doctor Land, we call that de-technicalizing. Yeah. So taking the medical jargon and making it uh, understandable. Uh, and and I think that there really is an art to that because it's not just about. Um, finding a, a metaphor. It's about understanding how the other person learns, and how the person you explain to, how they understand the world, and trying to work within that framework rather than simply yelling at them and telling them, "Why aren't you understanding?"
1: That's right. Yep. And analogies can often be useful, but but it's about putting things in in simple language. Um, and I know as as lawyers, we sort of become uh, the, the more we work in a particular area we'll become we develop our own language and our own sort of um, jargon to do with certain systems. but that means that it's not possible to explain or it's you know, the general public are not going to understand those sort of concepts and I think it's a really it's an important skill to explain them into simple language. And that coming back to the points we were talking about earlier, that, that means that misconceptions can be, um, can be busted and sort of more accurate
0: information can break through. Are there any other particular lessons that you often find yourself teaching to your students about either the legal career or about how they approach law in general? Um, Lessons,
1: well, I think, I mean, the advice that I give to students is just to follow their own path. Everyone has to find the path that works for them in terms of their values and their priorities. I mean, for some students, it will be important to make a lot of money to... um, to have the, the corner office with the view, yeah. uh, and that's and that's that's completely valid. You know, everyone has a particular path which works for them, and I think the most important for me thing for me is uh, to make sure that students know that there are alternative careers out there, and even to sort of point them towards um, what sort of careers they might be. Um, and and also i encourage students to make contact with the organizations that work in the area so the the law institute of victoria is a great body that that law students and recent graduates can get involved in and that can sort of help them to network to find people who are working in the area that they're interested in and that can actually help to lead them towards their um their first job it's pretty competitive out there for law students at the moment and it's students most students have realized that it's important for them to really start their career thinking a long time before their their final year they have to really get out there and start volunteering and doing those sort of networking opportunities um early on and do it continually
0: are there any other resources that they can seek out in terms of
1: career advice the law institute of victoria i think is one of the really valuable ones but um it's sort of a matter of speaking with people as well like um you know, if they're studying criminal law, then it may be that their lecturer in that area has actually worked in that area. And I always encourage students to speak with the, the person who's teaching in the area that they feel passionate about. And, you know, I, I, when I was studying law, I was interested in many different areas, including constitutional law and um, and even consumer law at a certain stage. And it really helped actually having the conversations with those people who who often have worked in that era and they can tell you a little bit about what it's like to work in that era and what might be useful in terms of career steps. Mm.
0: If um, Is there any advice that you wish you would have been given before you entered law? So this is going way back. When you were a high school student and you were thinking about law, is it something you would have liked to have known? Uh, um, it's
1: hard to sort of myself back at that stage, but I guess I guess it's a journey, and sort of like you learn along the way, um, and yeah, I'm really grateful for the advice that I've received along the way and the people that I've met. Um, and I guess it's sort of the advice that I'd give it would be to take advantage of every opportunity. You know, there's there's always opportunities out there. And I know a lot of law students are sort of time poor in terms of having to manage a lot of things while they're studying. But it's always valuable to take advantage of any opportunity. I think volunteering is so, so good um, because it gives back to the community, but also gives back to the person who's giving the advice. And It means they're networking without um without even realizing that they're networking mm. i often find sort of the idea of networking for the purpose of networking sort of pretty off-putting yeah. but it, it, but it's a joy when you're actually doing it and it's something that you're really passionate about at the same time and you'll tend to
0: meet people who are passion, have similar passions to you mm. uh, just to finish off are there any other uh, organizations you'd like to talk about or advocate for before we go
1: um, no, I mean, I'd, I'd like to give a, a big um, plug to the Office of the Public Advocate. I, I think they've been really valuable. I don't have a lot of time to do volunteering myself at the moment, but but I've found that the, the volunteering that I do with them is quite, um, you know, it's a small thing that I can do at the moment and it's, um, and it feels very practical in terms of um, the assistance which we can provide to people with a disability and making sure that they are living a life with dignity and their rights are being respected.
0: Brilliant. Well, thanks for coming on to the show, Bill. I really appreciate it. Um, so, uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, make sure you check out our other episodes. There's plenty of other careers you can check out. Uh, make sure you look at our website. There's uh, links and resources and all kinds of things. Um, and hey, if you have any questions for Bill, I can uh, certainly pass it on, or if Bill's willing, we can leave some contact details. If you need some career advice, we can uh, see if we can make that work, Uh, but uh, join us next time for our next guest, whoever that may be. Haven't figured that out yet. Uh, In the meantime, remember, there are no small jobs, only jobs you haven't discovered yet.